This morning we are, um, you know, we spent, uh, we spent a lot of time in the book of Romans. Um, technically, I, I think I've preached 15 uh, sermons through the book of Romans. And uh, we came to a place and I took a little bit of a break. And we, uh, we've been interchanging some miracles of Jesus in over the, the months that we've been here in Romans. And uh, this week we are back in Romans. And so I want you to be here with me, be present with me in, in a message that um, is a very important one and is dear, uh, dear to my heart. Just a quick recap of Romans chapter 8. We did a little mini micro-series within Romans chapter 8 that we called More Than Conquerors. It's the very words that come at the end of chapter 8 and 30, verse 37. Three parts, and we took the first few verses, and we found out that a, a believer, a Christian, when you are saved, part one was new life. You have this life that you did not have before, that you are a new being, a new creature, and in that you find uh, a new hope was the second in the series. That we found we had a new hope, and this week we talk about a new assurance. Here's something that happens when you are preaching through books of the Bible uh, occasionally, and this was one for me that uh, I'll just, I need you all to just be with me today, all right? You come to a passage of Scripture that challenges you, that challenges what you've believed sometimes your whole life about God, okay? This was one for me. This was one of those passages of scripture. This morning, we, uh, you know, last week, who had fun on Leave It? It's really fun to go preach a miracle of Jesus, right? And just dig into the, the, this just, the, the just rewarding, the exciting story of Jesus performing miracles and all that he has for us. Romans 8 is filled with deep theology, okay? It gets really deep. I don't want to go there this morning. I don't want to go. These 12 verses I'm getting ready to preach on, honest to goodness, I could preach for probably two months on what is here. But we're not going to do that. But this is important. This is an important passage that we all have to look at, acknowledge, and decide what we're going to do with it. So here's what we're going to talk about this morning, something that, you know, I never think, let's talk about this on a Sunday morning, but here's uh, where we are. We're talking about the, the assurances that God gives his people. The assurance that God gives his people. There's several we find here, we're going to talk about them in, in just a minute. I want you to know that these, these verses, all right, this passage for... Uh, roughly 500 years since the 1500s, there was two different guys, took a different perspective on what this passage means. One was called, his name was, uh, his last name was Calvin, John Calvin. He started a thing called Calvinism. You may have heard of it. Uh, it's got five points, and I'm not going to go into all the details. We could, and we'll spend time if you want after this, and you and me and a group, happy to do it. And then there was another group uh, uh, led by a guy named Arminian, started what was called Arminianism. Y'all having fun yet? Like, man, this service, he got me at, he got me at Arminianism. I'm hooked. For 500 years, the church has been divided about an issue. 
an issue that is a tough question. And, and at the heart of this question is, can a believer, can someone who has given all of their everything to Christ, that is a truly regenerate believer that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in, can they lose their salvation? That's the question. I could take a poll right now in this room. we got people from all kinds of different denominations and places. Everybody's going to have a different perspective. You're going to say, absolutely, I've seen people you know, lose their faith. And we're going to have some say, listen, I've, I've dug in the Word, I've seen, and I've felt in my spirit what God teaches in these verses that a believer cannot lose their faith, a truly regenerate believer God has saved. You get ready to go on a journey with me as I do my best to address this issue in the verses that we're in. I got in such a way when I came to it that I went and read our church's statement of faith. And I said, I'm reading this verse and then I'm looking at what we have stated that we believe and I'm trying to reconcile it. All right? So, y'all, first time here, you're coming in. It's not always like this if this is your first Sunday. But this is an important Sunday for our church. So I went to our elders. We're, we've got a board of elders, and I said, "Listen, I, I can't, I can't preach on these like I can't preach on these verses as long as this is what we says." And we, we spent about two and a half weeks together praying about this and saying, "Saying what is our statement of faith the final determination of what is right and wrong, or is God's word?" And so I want to share with you, one, what our statement of faith said, and then I want to talk through these verses, and I want to share how we've rewritten it. I want to share where my heart is. And here's what I pray. Unity in our body of believers. That I stand up here every Sunday with a responsibility to do my best to share what I believe about what is in this book. And this morning, you're going to hear me do that uh, with as much conviction as I ever have. Some of you, it will challenge what you think about God. It did me, okay? Some of you will leave saying, he's lost it. Some of you will be leaving saying, thank God, I get it, okay? So just be with me. There's good people on both sides of this fence. Here's the beautiful thing. Here's what I think is absolutely true about the Bible. There are tons of warnings for believers to die to your old self, to be faithful, to live righteous, to be holy, to turn away from sin, to repent, to come back to God, to be careful that if you don't persevere until the end, you will not be saved. But then you come to verses like this that there's also comforts that says it's not on you to persevere till the end. God has got you and you have this comfort. Both of these are in the Bible. That's why there's two people that say it's either this or that. And I'll just be honest, I don't think it's this or that. Somehow in a way above our understanding, both are true. God takes care of us, yet we have a call to live as faithful to his word and responsibility like he gives us. I 
I want to just ask this question. Who do you trust? Who do we trust? Who do we trust with salvation, with eternity? Do you trust yourself? Do I trust myself? Let's look first in Ephesians chapter 2. How do we get saved? Like, that'd be a good thing to know. Like, how do we get saved? If that's a thing, and we're going to talk about how we stay saved, let's figure out how we get saved. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is not you. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And then the verse you hear me quote all the time that I love so much, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork. Believers are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We can't boast. It's a gift of God. There's a lot of truth in there about salvation and how we get saved. By grace through faith, it's a gift of God, not by works. We can't boast. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. So let's, uh, let, I, want, I want to read to you what our statement of faith said that, that I had uh, that, that just burdened my heart. It said this, it said the right things at the beginning about how you get saved in grace and faith, and it had this at the end. It said, but their future obedience and final salvation are neither determined nor certain since through infirmity and manifold temptations they are in danger of falling, of falling and they ought therefore to watch and pray lest they make shipwreck of their faith and be lost. But their future obedience and final salvation, I want to read it one more time, are neither determined nor certain since through infirmity and manifold temptations they are in danger of falling and they ought therefore to watch and pray lest they make shipwreck of their faith and be lost. When I read this again, and I was part of the ones that drafted this six years ago when we started the church, uh, put this together and included it. Um, when, I, when I read this again after re reading this passage in the last few weeks, th this read in a way that that a Christian could accidentally or could sin in a moment, and if they died in that moment, they would lose their salvation. Like you're getting ready to get hit by a car and you cuss, all right? And oh, that's it. All you know, 
you messed up, it's over. And I'm reading these verses in chapter 8 that we're getting ready to read. I'm like, that is not... If, if, if me not cussing is not how I get into heaven. He doesn't say by, by, by grace and your good works and your effort and how hard you try and how good you are. That, that is how you are saved. He says by grace through faith, it's a gift of God. I'm going to take you through Romans chapter 8. This may go longer than normal. I'm sorry, but we need to get through this, and we need to understand, and we need to say, how does this apply? I'm going to tell you, what does it mean, right? Because, listen, I'm a guy who grew up scared to death of two words, eternal security. That word, right, scary. It meant you get saved, and you do whatever you want, and you're always saved, and it's a license to sin. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. The first assurance we find here in verse 28. Let's read through these verses. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Assurance number one, if you take notes, please do take notes. Uh, and and I, want, I want to preface these five assurances that I'm going to talk about are all for the believer, for the Christian. Okay, these five assurances are for the believer. When I say you in these five assurances, that means if you are a believer. If you are not a believer, you have no assurance at all, except that God loves you and his invitation is open for you to accept. Assurance one is that God works things out for you. God works things out for you. This verse says he does it in everything. What does everything mean? It means everything. What do, what's not in everything? It means circumstances. It means people that come into your life. If you get into the Greek, it's really talking about how things actually connect and commingle and work together. Somehow God is so sovereign and bigger than us that he's working things to your good. You're like, all right, well, that's great. He's working things to the good of my checking account? No. He's working things out for the good of this business deal I'm working on? No. He's working things out for the good of, of your happiness so that I'm going to be happy every day. No. Actually, it's the opposite. He's saying that the most important thing in your life is your faith. And he's working everything to the good, the spiritual profit in your life. That means that the business deal might go bad if it's for the greater good of your faith. This is a moment in time where you can realize no matter what circumstance I'm in, there is this promise that if you are a believer, God is working the circumstances in your life for good. I love that at first it says those that love him. But then it says, who have been called, that he is the one putting this initiative forward, that he is the one that is good enough to call us, that we are just simply responding to his goodness. Assurance number two, this is where it gets pretty deep. Uh, in Romans eight twenty nine, the scary word predestined. 
Verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And verse 30 says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That word glorified, that is when we ultimately become just like Christ in heaven. That's the end of the believer's journey. We are glorified. Let me tell you how much confidence Paul had in this. He said it in the past tense when he was talking about these believers. Those who have been called, those who are believers, you've been justified, you've been glorified. Like he was so confident in it. He said it in the past tense. The Greek was in the past tense. This word here, verse 29, for those God foreknew, meaning those he knew was going to accept him and we were going to believe and accept Christ as our Savior. He says, those he predestined. What's that Greek word? What is predestined? It means to destine or appoint before, to foreordain, to predetermine. From the root word prorizo, y'all learning Greek and old people from the 1500s, so much fun. means to mark off or to set off the boundaries of something. I'm reading that and saying those I foreknew were going to save, God is saying he has gone to the end and marked it off. He has predestined us to what? To be conformed. Formed to the image of his son to be glorified to be in heaven that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters who Jesus is the firstborn and he's going to have many brothers and sisters you and me that he was the firstborn predestined this is a bible dictionary definition two major concepts are involved in the biblical meaning of predestination First, God, who is all-powerful in the universe, has foreknown and predestined the course of human history and the lives of individuals. If he were not in complete control of human events, he would not be sovereign and thus would not be God. Second, God's predestination of human events does not eliminate human choice. A thorough understanding of how God can maintain his sovereignty and still allow human Freedom seems to be reserved for his infinite mind alone. Great minds have struggled with this problem for centuries. I was thinking about Peter here, what we just preached on last week. Let me take you to Luke chapter 5. Are y'all hanging on? You still here? Nope. Yep. I'm going to read you exactly what he said to Peter. In verse 10, Jesus speaking to Simon at the time, he said, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. If I say that to you, if I say, Paul, from now on, you're going to fish for people, you think, maybe I will, maybe I won't. What if God in the flesh says that to you? From now, don't be afraid. You are going to fish for people. This is God speaking that to Peter. I begin to ask myself, could Peter have not gone on and fished for 
men, right? If God has spoke that to his life, yet we see in Peter's life this balance of, I mean, he denies Christ, he messes up, he decides after the resurrection, you know what, maybe I was wrong about Jesus, I'm going back fishing, and he goes out in the boat and he doesn't catch anything again, and yet we see God's sovereignty at play here, and at the same time, Peter's ability to make decisions. You can choose every day. You know, when we were in Ephesians, there's a lot of predestined from the foundation of the world, God chose you, right? Remember, we had this conversation, who picked out what you were wearing today, right? And we'd all say, either me or my spouse. (laughs) We have free will. We can choose. But at the same time, God is God, and he's completely sovereign. And if you're looking to me to have it all figured out and me to stand up here and say, I'll tell you how it works, I don't know. But they're both here. And we have to do something with it. We can't pretend like there's one and not the other. And so, we have the two assurances we've talked about so far. First, uh, God works things out for you. Uh, Second, that God has determined to fulfill his purpose for the believer. You can be assured of that. You've given Christ your heart. He has determined to fulfill his purpose you assurance three in verses 31 through 33 paul then after this this statement verse 30 says and those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified i mean he's he's like dropped the bomb mic drop all right to the romans and then he follows up with these seven questions that are that are hypothetical questions. He's giving answers. He's, he's, he's given the answer with a question. And so the first question he asks is, what then shall we say in response to these things? That's the first question. He goes on with six. In verses 31 through 33 in these questions, we find out that this is assurance number three, that God is for you, not against you. God is for you. This is, again, you being the believer. God is for you, not against you. What does he say? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In other words, how are we going to condemn each other? I mean, who's going to, who's going to, who's going to pick who is, is a Christian and who is not? God is saying, it is me who justifies. I am for you. If, if he's asking who, who can be against us if God is for us, the answer is nobody. Nobody. This is how he gets down to, you are more than a conqueror. So you have this assurance that God is for you, not against you. In verse 34, in this question, we have this assurance that Christ does not condemn you. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
the very one who lived perfect, who had the right to sit in the judge's seat, the one who has the, the right and the power and the ability to judge you, to condemn you, the believer, he says, no one can do He's actually fighting for you. He's actually advocating for you. He's actually interceding with, between you and the Father. The very one who, who, who you should have been his enemy is your best friend. Who then is the one who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, talking about the church. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The fifth assurance, Christ delivers you from the severest circumstances, extreme experiences, and the most powerful forces. He delivers you. He delivers you. He's speaking to a church in Rome at this time. Everything's pretty rosy. Within a decade, it blows up under immense persecution. Christians dying. I mean, it is just the church becomes persecuted as much as it ever has been in Rome. These people that Paul is writing to. And he's saying no matter who tries, no matter what happens, no matter what comes against you. When you read that in verse 30, uh, uh, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And in verse 36, it says, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The verse that this entire, this three-part series is named after. He asks all these questions. He's, and, and what things are we conquerors? In trouble, in hardship, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You gotta imagine at this time, uh, this was not too far removed from a guy named Alexander the Great, conquered the known world. That probably would have been a name that they would have stuck in their head when Paul said, You're more than conquerors. They'd been thinking about Alexander the Great, who, who went at the youngest age, who conquered the Persian Empire, who took on everything by himself. And Paul said, No, 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 no. In Christ Jesus, anything that comes against you, you are more than that. You thought he was great. You are more than that. The last two verses, for Paul was convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers. I mean, I could sit down and go by through each of these words. If you're a believer, death can't separate you from Christ. Life can't separate you from Christ. I mean, what all does that include? Angels 
can't separate you from Christ. The demons that will haunt you, and you better believe there's spiritual warfare, warfare against our families, against our communities, against our church. Neither the present, this in this moment, nothing in the future, nor any powers, spiritual powers, principalities, neither height nor depth. I mean, that pretty much covers everything. Paul's like, you know, that's not enough. Nor anything else in all creation. Like, did I miss something? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so I'm going to share what we changed our draft to. And then we'll talk... um, Going the wrong way, I think. Went backward. I was fancy. And then I'll say, how do we respond? What does this mean if this is true? And for some of you, like, yeah, I know it's true. I've always believed it. Some of you, like, I don't know if that's true or not. I've, that sounds like not the God I understand, the Bible I understand. There are good people that disagree about this and are both sides of it. All I'm asking is for both sides, whatever side you're on, let's acknowledge the Scripture and support for both sides of this. And let's agree to love one another. Because at the end of the day, how we respond, I believe, is pretty much the same. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. This, here's our new statement in its totality. We believe salvation comes by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who profess Christ as their Savior are born again by the Holy Spirit and thereby become children of God and heirs of eternal life. Believers should make every effort to bear good fruit, put their old ways to death, and live out their faith in grateful response to God's saving grace. Let me tell you, I grew up going to church every Sunday hoping I wouldn't go to hell. As a Christian, scared that if I missed, I might not. Trying to do good so I would be good enough. Trying to not do the wrong things so I would be good enough. And we're going to talk about it in a minute, but this changes our motivation. And I want to talk about it in just a second. I've got ahead of myself. Believers should make every effort to bear good fruit, put their old ways to death, and live out their faith in grateful response to God's saving grace. The final part of the statement, there are strong grounds to believe that the truly regenerate, there will be people walk through this door, we think they're saved, they've been so churchy for like six months, and perfect, and you never see them when they just go and life is totally different again. We're going to talk about what does that mean. But the truly regenerate will persevere into the end and be saved through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which is pledged for their support. That's the statement in its entirety. I think it catches both sides. It says we, we, we believe what the Bible says. Because what we said before was that when it, I, I'm reading this uh, in, in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I'm going back saying, in our statement of faith, it said, but their, their end thing is not determined. It's up to me. I couldn't reconcile that with what this says, okay? What's it mean? What do we do with it? 
The first question that people ask and that is the, the fear that everyone has. Does that mean I have a license to sin? We just preached. Paul, Romans chapter 6. Let me read you what Paul says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Like, no way. That doesn't make any sense. He's saying you are a regenerate believer. Church, being saved is not taking up membership at a church. It is not choosing this week to go to church and next week not go. It is not, I'm going to be a part of this people for a while, and that makes me saved, and I decide. When you are saved, it is a spiritual transformation where the Holy Spirit comes, takes up residence inside of you. And he says, if that happened, you don't ask the question, how much can I sin and get away with? That'd be good. How much can I do and not go far enough? That's not a question. A truly regenerate believer asks. I think I got four things here on how we respond. I got five assurances, four points. So this is going to go forever. I'm going to get through these quick. How do we respond? One, we choose Christ. If you are lost, you choose Christ. He first loved you. It's His grace. It's the gift of faith. You have the responsibility to choose and accept Christ. In Galatians, Paul was writing to that church, and uh, this is this is one of the the scriptures that, um, uh, at first glance, looks like it says you can lose your salvation. Galatians 5.2 says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Oh, man, that wrecked me when I read it. Just to be completely honest, because he's talking to a church that there's been some Judaizers, some people that have gotten in it and said, Oh, yeah, Jesus and that grace thing, it's good, but you still got to do the laws. You still got to be circumcised to, to really be saved. You still have to do these things. And he said this, he said, well, if that's what it is, then what good is Jesus? If your salvation, if your continuing salvation depends on you doing good and obeying all the laws, what is the point of the whole thing? If it's up to you and me, then why Jesus? Why? I mean, we sing Amazing Grace about when we get saved. He went on to say, you know, Christ will be of no value at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So if you're going to pick one thing, I got to do this to stay saved. Well, actually, you just better go and pick them all, and you better do them all, everyone perfect. If, if it's the law, it's the law. If it's grace, it's grace. You can't have one foot in both sides of this. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Verse 4, he said, you are trying to be justified by the law of being alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, the message, the truth, that grace is the path to salvation. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So how do we respond? Choose Christ too. We don't know who's saved. Don't judge on who you think is saved. 
I'll be honest, I've come through this and realized that when we get to heaven, our mind is going to be blown, I think, about who is there. Because I think there will be people we thought, man, they were so good, they did all this stuff, like on the surface, on the external, they looked just like perfect. But they internally had never really given their heart, they never surrendered in real saving faith that builds a relationship with God. I've seen it happen. Uh, I've seen people come in and get saved, and immediately we start thinking, ah, they'll never make it. They can't do it. They're going to mess up. Because we think being saved, saved, saved is on the power of the person. Yet we, we just sang all these songs about he's our rescuer. <laughs> I mean, we sang all these songs about the truth of the grace of who God is and what he has the power to do. And it's a struggle because I think we all get confused that we are saved because we do come to a worship service. Instead of realizing we come to a worship service because we are saved. Because we have a hunger to be in his presence. It's a move away from this mindset that I got to go or I'm not going to be good. It's a mindset that I only have any good because God had grace and mercy on me. In that we'll want to judge a Christian who doesn't live up to our expectations of what righteousness and, and perfection is. Jesus said this to some Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Oh, my God. That's Jesus talking. To people who thought, I am saved because I had some self-righteous level. I mean, when you say they can't make it because they can't be like me, then you've totally missed the message of grace. Because if we can be saved in our obsession with material things, if we can be saved in our covetous of what our neighbor has, if we can be saved from our complaining and incessant frustration and gossip, all these things that are, that are expected of us, how can the, 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 the drug addict, how, how can the one in jail, how can we, our minds might be blown about who has accepted God's grace. And it's a real dangerous slope to start making decisions and choosing and judging and making predictions about who you think is saved or not. All right, third thing. Be at war with sin. This is how we respond. Be at war with sin. This does not mean we have a license to sin. It means we should run from it. It means God gives us the power to eschew evil and do good. Eschew means get out of dodge. Don't mess with it. Because you know what it has? I mean, you're not, 
and again, you may believe one way. I'm in a spot where I'm believing in a different way. I'm not trying to convince you. I got to stand here every Sunday morning. I was on these verses. I just got to tell you where my heart is. I don't think you can sin enough to lose your salvation because you can't be good enough to earn it. I think God changes your heart, though, and you have no desire to keep sinning. And, 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 but you will make mistakes. I mean, Paul didn't write to all these churches and say, stop sinning because they were perfect. But he, he did it because there are consequences to sin, real-life consequences. Adultery wrecks marriages, families, kids. It brings brokenness. It affects your reputation and ability to lead in the kingdom. It affects the reputation of the church. Right? What happens? Oh, they, they're really righteous. Everybody down there is doing whatever they want. And it affects the reputation of the church. Paul has already answered the question about sin. He says, you know what? You're a new creation with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. By no means do we continue in sin and do more of it so we can have more grace. But you can't be on both sides of the fence. And say, I get saved by grace, but I stay saved through my works. You just can't be there. The last thing I want to say is you. It is absolutely possible to be a mediocre, apathetic Christian. It is possible to be a Christian and go to church on Sunday, never get involved, never do more than, than, than you feel like you know you should. And though can those people be saved? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we see in First John that there are rewards for those who are more active in their faith and in serving God than those that, that maybe they even do good things, but they do it for the wrong reasons. He said, hey, you're going to go before Christ someday, the church, believers, you're not going to be judged on your sins. You're going to be judged on your good works. And some of you, some of us just going to burn up. You've built the church, but it's been with grass and hay and whatever, you know, like the three little pigs. And it's going to not get blown down. It's going to burn up. He said, but some of you are going to receive a crown. And, and so my, my final thing is we do this in great gratitude. Why do we serve? Why do we try to be more and more like Christ? Why do we live with righteousness? Why do I want to be at church? Why do I, I, I want to cast the bad thoughts out of my mind? Why do I want to move away from an R-rated movie and not watch that? Why do I want to do those things? Because I want to be more like Christ, and I want to tell more people about Christ, and, and I want to be more like him, and I can't do it when sin is in my life. It creates this separation between me and him. It, it, it could lead to destroying my family, the good things on this side. It breaks my blessings away from him. I said mediocre, apathetic. Apathetic is the point we get to where we just don't care, where we're just going through the motions. 
man, guys, this week said we don't want to be a church of mediocre, apathetic Christians who, who feel defeated, who feel like the problems are hopeless in our neighborhoods, who feel like I'm just waiting for the Lord to come back. I want you to take what Paul said. I want to do a better job taking what Paul said, where he said, we are more than conquerors. That we are going to be a church on fire, not this building, hopefully. A community of believers who said, you know what? I'm not living in fear. Go read 1 John 4. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Our statement of faith. Where it kind of felt like, man, every day you better be careful. You're going to make shipwreck. That's fear. Fear of punishment. When we've just read that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, me and uh, Bethany, we are really good Christians. You know, we like to shop at Hobby Lobby. And uh, I was, I mean, she has been in this trench with me for three weeks as I've struggled with this. And we've prayed about it and we've read and studied together. Um, and I was sitting, we were sitting there. And I said, I don't even know why. You got, you got a two-year-old in the house and kids from the neighborhood coming in and out. Things that should be on the wall end up on the dining room table. I don't know how it happens or why, but it was sitting there. And I looked up. And uh, and y'all may have this hanging in your house too, but I, I sat it here the entire time as I was preaching this so I could read it. spent my entire life singing Amazing Grace. But not living in it. Okay, I sing it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then I've gone out and tried to work and earn it. Grace that requires us to check all the boxes is it's not grace. And by no means is grace that requires me to secure my own salvation, to watch and pray, to fear shipwreck every day because of my mistakes is not amazing. But our God 
offers amazing grace. <laughs>